Brooklyn's Radio believes your health matters. It's Jill Bennett on Brooklyn's Radio. today to bring you this hour-long special all about gynae cancers. We've had lots of interviews on Brooklyn's Radio and with some just very, very lovely ladies and I'm humbled to have so many people who are willing to talk to us. On the first half of this programme, we're going to be talking to a couple of people. Lucy Dodds, who is a mum, a teacher and a cancer survivor, and Dr Kavitha Maduri, who is a specialty doctor in Oncology at the Royal Sound NHS Foundation Trust and at St Luke's Cancer Care. Um, ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us, Jim. Oh, it's really lovely to have you on here. And I, and I do feel very humbled that so many people are willing to talk about their journeys because it is such a good thing for other women, other ladies to hear this and to know what some of the symptoms are just in case something like this happened to them. Um, Shall we start first of all with Lucy? Yep, we can do that. (laughs) Lucy, would you like to tell us a little bit about your journey? When did it all start for you? Well, it all started for me in April 2018 when I got my letter from my GP suggesting it was time for me to go and have my regular smear test, which I and Julie did. And, you know, I didn't think much about it. And I know it always takes time for the results to come back, but um, I hadn't heard. And of course, you start thinking. And then in May, I did get a letter back. And at the same time, as the letter, a letter from the hospital came asking me to go for a colposcopy. And obviously that did raise concerns with myself because I had had said I had some abnormal cells, which I'd never had before. So I went for that. And whilst I was there, um, the lovely nurse who I, I was lucky enough to have, she suggested I had a biopsy whilst I was there. And I'm delighted, looking back, I don't know if delighted is the right word, but I'm glad I did mm. because that actually helped, you know, miss a stage in waiting because I was then diagnosed in June and the diagnosis came back. Actually, it was the 21st of June. I'll never forget. It was the day before my birthday. Mm. And um, diagnosis came back saying that um, I did have cancer cells and I was stage one, grade two. And... Uh, so that was then, and very luckily, the nurse that I eventually spoke to, I think because I spoke to her, we could get the ball rolling. So before I'd even seen one of the consultants, which wasn't Kavita at this time, um, she had organised for me to go and have an MRI and PET scan um, the following Tuesday, and I, this was on the Thursday. So things actually moved really quickly for me. And then on that Tuesday, I had the PET scan. And then I went to see the consultant on the Wednesday with the results to the PET scan. And I had the MRI on that afternoon. And then I then met back with, um, it was Dr. Taylor, Mr. Taylor at the time. And... uh, um, on the Friday, he went through, re- explained that I would have to have what was called a radical hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I had that was then put in for mid middle of July. And um, of course, I didn't really know what a radical hysterectomy was, but I had explained extremely clearly exactly what the procedure would be, what it would involve. And um, so on the July the 19th, 2018, I went for radical hysterectomy, which where I had my ovaries taken, my fallopian tubes taken, my womb taken out, and also part of my cervix was cut out as well. Right. And then I had to wait for the histology reports to come back to see if I would need any further therapy. But thankfully, I was a very lucky lady. It hadn't spread further and no further therapy was needed. So that's it kind of summed up in a little picture. But obviously, it's a process. Although April to July seems long, in actual fact, from the diagnosis to the operation, it was less than four weeks. That's quite amazing, isn't it, really? Yeah, and I do feel extremely lucky. And I had an amazing team of people. And so I had, um, from the Royal Surrey, there was um, Dr. Um, Mr. Simon Butler, Manuel, and Kavita as well, who became part of the team that I was lucky enough to be um, treated by. Yeah, I think the, the more I hear about the ladies being treated at the Royal Surrey, there does seem to be a pretty amazing team there. Oh, I think we were, I was, I mean, actually, you know, every time I think about how I was treated and the people I've got to know, I feel really humbled by the whole process and feel so lucky. And that made me want to think, well, actually, I'm someone who is lucky enough to come through this and it not to have spread. And I still, I, I'm still going for regular every checkups every three to four months. But it's really important for me that I now help create more awareness about cervical cancer. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a brilliant thing to do. Um, maybe talk a little bit about the, the, the fact that you did go for your regular smear test, because so many of us get that dreaded letter through the post and it's something we put off. I mean, it is so important to have it. So, so tell us, I know you've got really strong views on that. Mm. So tell us more about mm. that. Well, you know, as a woman, you know, we, we, there's many things that go on in a woman's life. And, you know, you get this letter and, it, you know, you open it up and I'm sure it's sitting in the kitchen side and you think, right, yes, I'll make that appointment. But, you know, life takes over sometimes so I can understand why that happens and sometimes you know it's a case of you it's embarrassing you know you're going along you're kind of going out there you're being seen by a nurse that you don't know and also there's an, a fear you know a, that you may have as a woman as well and these are all perfectly good reasons to have you know to feel like that but it's not educated women need to realize all women whether they're educated or not need to realize the importance that it's either a case of this five minute of discomfort because it's not even painful it's a slight discomfort this five minute of discomfort and embarrassment is it's either that or let's be quite frank about it you can die yeah and that's you know 21 women die you know every day yeah, from cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, 18,000 women a year are diagnosed. So with those these numbers, we've got to get out there and say, look, yes, it is a letter and yes, it is uncomfortable. And I do feel scared, but that's when you can maybe we can look at actually women saying, you know, saying to a friend or speaking to your GP saying, this is how I feel. Mm-hmm. And maybe they can offer some form of support for yeah. those women. Well. Yeah. Yes, Lucy, can I just come in there and um, say, you know, I'm Jill, thank you very much for having both of us on the show. And as Lucy mentioned, yes, she's uh, she's been our patient. She has been successfully treated and is cured. And I remember the first time when I met Lucy after all of this and, you know, we I told her she had the all clear and she turned around to me and said, Kavita, I'm really keen to raise awareness. I don't want, you know, if I can avoid any other women going through this, there's surely there's much more we can do. So, you know, we've started on this journey and I'm very excited to be here today to talk about this. What I want to try and do is, Lucy's already told you about cervical screening, the cervical smears and her experience, but I want to try and dispel some myths and misconceptions that we all have um, so that we can try and encourage more women to go for their smears. So the first thing I think that probably scares women is that they think that cervical smears will pick up cervical cancer. Now, that's not quite true because any screening program is actually designed to identify individuals, you know, appear at the outset, you know, externally to be healthy, but for various reasons are at an increased risk of a disease or a condition. So essentially, when we talk about cervical screening, it's to try and get to that point where we don't get to the stage where we're treating a cancer. So really, it's trying to prevent cancer by detecting HPV and treating any precancerous cells in the cervix. So if we, so what we know is that if we detect early and treat, treat these precancerous cells, we can prevent nearly 75% of the cancer from developing. So one thing that we all need to bear in mind is that cervical cancer is a preventable disease. Well. And the two things that we could, you know, uh, think about really is cervical screening and the HPV vaccines. Mm. And both of these really are key if we want to try and essentially prevent the cancer. Mm. Now, you know, most of us, as Lucy has said, you know, just before our 25th birthday, there'll be an invitation to say, come along for your smear. And yes, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's embarrassing for me when I'm on the other side of the couch. Mm-hmm. And I always tell all my patients this, that it is dis- it, there is a bit of discomfort. It is embarrassing. But these are highly trained professionals. And when I take cervical smears, we're trained to do this and to try and do it with, you know, the minimal discomfort and embarrassment to the women. So, you know, we all received this invitation and up to the age of 49, it's every three years. And then beyond that, up to 65, less 64, it's every five years. So if you think about it, we all take our car annually for an MOT and, you know, we're only going once every three years or once every five years, depending on our age or depending on the risk or the need. Um, so really, we ought to invest in ourselves if we, you know, for not just for ourselves, but because of our families, our friends, and because of the role that women play in the society, in their community, in their family. And, you know, it's, it's pivotal that we do this. And I feel very, very strongly about this. I mean, I feel very, I was going to say, I feel really strongly about the HPV vaccination as well. I mean, and I'm seeing it from a, a mom who has a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. And it's not just the women that need to 
or the girls that need to have this vaccination, but it's the boys as well because, um, and it's actually really important that people understand that this vaccination is not a cure, but it's a preventative. And you know, for women, you know, for there's over a hundred types, as I understand, of HPV. Um, around 40 types of HPV infection can affect the genital area. And Kavita, you can obviously put me right here. But um, the genital HPV infections are the common, are common and highly contagious, and they're spread during sexual intercourse and skin-to-skin -skin contact. And that's not just for females, but that's for males as well. So the message that we need to get across is saying, have the vaccination, but the smear later on, on, when you reach 25 or at the right age as a woman you go for your smears and it can help prevent um, cancer, cervical cancer and for males it can help prevent you know anal cancer cancer of the penis some types of head and neck cancer so it is for both sexes and that's what's really important as well and to make sure that people understand that it is not a cure, but a preventative. So the, you're absolutely right, Lucy, because you know the HPV virus, it's a very common virus and it's transmitted from skin to skin contact. So it does not even need to be sexual intercourse. I mean, you know, certainly not penetrative intercourse at all. So it's direct skin to skin contact, even with just kissing. But what we all need to bear in mind, I mean, there's, you know, there should not be a cause for alarm or panic. Most of us harbor these virus, this virus, okay? But our immune system is very, very capable of clearing the infection without any treatment. So as you said, yes, there are absolutely, there are more than 100 subtypes of HPV, but not all of these actually cause any problems for us. So what we've got to remember is that, you know, there are some high-risk HPV types that is what the vaccine is designed to fight against. And there are some low risk types. So the high risk type essentially are responsible, you know, in over 99% of cervical cancers, these HPV high risk viruses have been detected. And like, you know, it's not just a woman's problem. The anal cancer, the other genital cancers, the penile cancers, and, you know, cancers of the mouth, neck and throat, it's, HPV is a notorious virus. And you're absolutely right. The government has rolled out a vaccination program since 2008. And initially, they were only vaccinating girls in year eight. You're a school teacher. I'm sure you, you know, it's very reassuring that if, you know, parents need any further information, if somebody is as well informed or knows a bit more about it like you do, then the, you know, level of reassurance that you can offer, I think, is probably going to be excellent. So uh, the Gardasil vaccine that's currently being offered, it's, two doses and you know it's yes it's again a minor discomfort but again it is a very 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 good safety mechanism and what we've forgotten is that we have vaccinated you know from birth and this is just something that's slightly further on in our lives but it's a very very good mechanism that currently exists and I'm delighted that the government I'm you know Lucy you've got a boy I've got a boy and I'm delighted that they've rolled this program out to vaccinate boys as well as of the end of last year so it's, and it's I think parents need to be educated about yeah. it as well that's also really important because parents aren't sure of all the facts. 
So that's and something maybe that needs to be out there in the schools as well. Definitely, most definitely, because I know when my daughter was due to have it, there were lots of girls in the school who didn't like vac- vac- vaccinations and were saying they weren't going to have it and their mums had agreed. So, you know, my daughter didn't want to have it and I said, well, you're having it. And I think it's key that parents are educated better. I mean, I had no idea that, that it would be useful for boys. And all that information you've just given us, Kavitha, is fascinating that it can affect all these other types of cancers. I mean, I had no idea about that. So I think we really do need to, to try and spread, spread the word and get some more information out on HPV itself. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, we're talking cancers, which is much further ahead in the journey. But what? You know, we all have warts in some area or the other of the body, but, you know, gentle warts can be quite, you know, it's, it's not pleasant to talk about it. Nobody wants to think, even think about it. But what uh, research and there's evidence now to suggest that girls who were vaccinated from 2008, there's been a significant drop because of the direct effect of immunization in the number of warts. And then as a result, there's been an indirect effect on the boys. And there's been a significant drop in our country that we've noticed in warts. I mean, that itself is, you know, it's so heartening as a medical professional to hear that. And now that it's like you said again, you know, if there's a bit more coverage and boys are also covered, it offers that herd immunization. And the hope is really what the NHS cervical screening program is really hopeful is that if we are able to achieve this herd immunity, the 12 cervical screens that a woman should go through during her lifetime, assuming all the smears are normal, can be dropped to just three. I mean, I think that would be fantastic. And if I can see that through in my career, I think it's a success. Yes, no, I think you're right. Maybe, Maybe there's just one other thing that we need to say here, and that is moving back to more mature women rather than the teenagers but a lot of women may think they need to wait and if they get any symptoms that are suspicious that's the time to have a smear but Lucy you didn't have any symptoms did you? I didn't have any symptoms that I was aware of at all I mean you know we're, we're told of many things to look for but as far as I was aware, I was normal. I didn't have anything, nothing showed, no bleeding, um, I, you know, no discomfort. So when people say you get, you know, symptoms, mm. I didn't. But then they do say that cervical cancer is always um, a silent killer mm. because until later on, because remember I was diagnosed early, um, later on, maybe that's when the symptoms arise as well. And it's but a even little the bit symptoms, the line. but even the symptoms, for example, it's you know abnormal vaginal bleeding. Now that's a very vague definition. So you know, for example, we say heavy periods, bleeding between periods, you know, bleeding after intercourse. These are the things that I ask women to look out for. But you know, bleeding after the menopause, a smelly vaginal discharge. Yes, it's all suggesting symptoms of, you know, bleeding and discharge. But again, you know, like Lucy said, we all lead very busy lives and sometimes it's very easy to forget these things. Mm. One thing I would like to say, Jill, is locally in and around Surrey, 
you know, Grace Charity has been working very hard to try and raise awareness about cervical cancers and the importance of cervical screening. I'm very heartened that there are lots of GP practices that are now running campaigns particularly because it was Cervical Cancer Prevention Week, you know, um, they've been doing lots of promotions to basically invite women to have their smears. And like me and you, you know, lots of women are very, very busy in their lives, professionally and personally. And the commonest reason I hear when I see patients is, oh, I don't have the time. Mm. It's fascinating that there are some women, in fact, I've had a couple of uh, women contact Grace Charity, who then reached out to ask me about this, to say that they would help, you know, offer their childminding services if women for free, if women wanted to go and have this meals. Yeah. So, really, we sh I think we should stop making an excuse. We should go out there. We should go and get our smears done as soon as possible when the time is, you know, it's time for us to do it. Absolutely, I think you're absolutely right, ladies. Thank you so much for talking to us today. We're going to continue this program in a moment with, um, with another couple of amazing ladies who've been here to, um, to share their journeys with us. But just to say thank you so much, Lucy, and thank you so much, Dr. Kavitha, for talking to us today um, about this very, very important topic. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having us. So with me next is Paula Jarvis, another one of our brave ladies who's coming here to talk to us today about their journeys with um, a gynecological cancer. Good afternoon, Paula. Good afternoon. Hello. Uh, it's lovely to have you here today. Um, tell us a little bit about you, Paula. Tell us about your life. Tell us, tell us who, who Paula is. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm 58. Um, I'm an, um, I've been an advertising copywriter all my life and uh, I'm freelancing now. Um, I have two lovely daughters of 27 and 29. Um, I live alone. Um, I'm finally in my own home in Guildford again after going through quite a protracted divorce, um, which was finalised in 2017. Um, there you go. <laughs> oh no, it's, it's lovely to have you here today. Um, now, I know that your cancer was, was found um, after a sort of protracted period of time. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, it was over a long period of time. So I, uh, um, so the, it's actually, I actually got a diagnosis of cervical cancer um, in May 2019. But it was um, back in June 2017 that I, um, I discovered I was, I'd had my menopause and I was having postmenopausal bleeding, which was just spotting in the pants, you know. Mm. It was a, but I knew there's a lot of information out there that that's not a good sign. So I immediately went to see my doctor who um, booked me in for a smear test. And um, actually at the meeting, we discussed that, um, you know, I'm divorced, I'm not having sex, there's a lot of vaginal dryness, which I think at my age, women do. Yes, quite, yes. So she gave me um, estrogen ointment that I had to put, put, put pessaries in for two weeks before the smear test. Yeah. So it became quite a, it's quite a saga preparing for the smear test. Yes. So I, I did that, um, turned up for the smear test. It was uncomfortable, unpleasant, didn't enjoy it at all. Um, um, but sort of glad to, to get it done. Um, um, I went away, and then a few weeks later, I got a note uh, home saying uh, my smear test was inadequate and it would need to be repeated, but I couldn't have that done for another three months because the cervix had been disturbed. 
I mean, I just found it. I've had smear tests all my life and never had an inadequate smear. Yes, yeah. So that's always a shock when that happens, isn't it? Yeah. So finding the time to repeat that whole horrible experience um, was difficult. Um, I was working full time, was trying to sell the marital home after divorce, um, but I was still getting postmenopausal bleeding. It did, it did stop for a bit and then start again. So um, it was, I was like, I need to get this sorted. Mm. Um, so I finally went to have another smear test, repeated the whole process two weeks to the pessaries, um, and then had the smear into August 2018 um, and then um, I got the same letter oh. so your smear was inadequate um, come back in three months time and I was just totally frustrated um, but you know I, I again I had a lot going on in my life um, and that my house the house was finally sold I had to pack everything up move into a rental flat um, eventually and I was also commuting to London as a freelancer so eventually I after I moved into the flat I um I went to see that went to the doctors and I thought well I'm not going to go through that whole process again no. and I was to see the receptionist and I queued up when I got to her I said I've you know I've had two inadequate smears I've got postmenopausal bleeding are you going to you know are you going to give me another smear and she said oh well um maybe the nurses got it wrong and the doctor who trains them could do it for you and I thought well if, and I actually said to her, well, can't you just send me to hospital and knock me out and take what you need? I really don't mind. Yeah. I, like, obviously, she was a bit embarrassed, poor woman, but I was just like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. And so she booked me in to see the doctor. And um, I did, again, I got some more pessaries, did the two weeks of pessaries, went to see the doctor and got told, oh, you're, you're in a two weeks emergency. We need to get you looked at urgently. It was finally, and that was in uh, May, May 2019. Wow. So how long had gone, two years had gone? It was, two, well, it was June 2017, so that was May 2019. Yes. Um, it, you know, what I think is, you know, I should have kicked up more of a fuss earlier on, but I, I was kind of going with the process. This seemed yes. to be what I did, and, um, and I had a lot going on in my life as well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I, it's... I, if I'd, you know, obviously if I'd just religiously done three months in between, it still would have been six, you know, nine months before mm. it was looked at. So. Mm. And I guess it's with hindsight, it's easy to see what we should have done, but it's not so easy. As you say, at the time you had an awful lot going on. Now, I know you've looked at the statistics around inconclusive smear tests. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you've done there? Well, I, um, I mean, the stats might be out of date. I'm not a researcher. Yeah. <laughs> but what I did find online, because I've never had an inadequate smear before, um, it said that 10% of pap smears are inadequate. And, and then it's like, well, why? Why are they inadequate? It's nothing to do with the woman presenting herself. It mm. can be that insufficient cervical cells are collected or there's a gap between the cells being taken and them being um, kept for, as a sample, stored as a sample. Mm. I don't know if that's changed. Again, I don't have my research out of date. And then um, it could be an obscured sample due to inflammatory cells, um, blood or mucus. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's curious. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. is. I mean, I know I've had ones before where they've said there's an abnormality and it needs checking again. This was a long time ago. But it does seem, yeah, especially if it's the case that they've hung on to it for too long. Yes. You know, that's well, not... Well, the thing was, it's like either you get a clear result or you get a result telling you've got cancer or, you know, that it needs to be looked into further. But there's yeah. this middle ground where it's inadequate. 
Mm. And you're kind of stuck in this, well, what do I do? And what does that mean? Mm. And I did also find that they're looking into the anxiety that, that, that this creates in women. Well, I'm here. What, what does that mean? Maybe I have got cancer, you know, because there's no confirmation that you haven't. Yes. And, um, and then, and also, like, I, t- I went twice and it was a real saga to get the smear done. Um, and then you just go through this. It was, yeah, I just feel now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's not good at all. Oh, okay. So two years um, before you managed to push this and get it done, what happened after that? So at that meeting um, on the 22nd of May, um, the, I went into the doctor expecting to, be, to have to go through another smear. And then she said, no, we're putting on two weeks referral. I'd never heard of two weeks referral before. But basically it meant that I had to be looked at urgently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to, I went to the hospital and was told I was going to have a colposcopy. Um, never heard of this before either, but I read the leaflet <laughs> and, you know, sort of, okay. Um, but you go in and you go into this room. Um, it, it's in the hospital. So, um, and there's sort of other women in the waiting room. Um, and you go into this room and it's like a birthing chair. You sit there, your legs apart, and then you get tipped up. So you can't see who's looking at what's happening. Right. Um, I, did have a, I did have a nurse holding my hand and I must have squeezed her hand off. <laughs> but basically they took a, a sample from me. Um, and then um, sent, uh, sent me out. And I remember as I went, the doctor said, oh, we'll get back to you in four weeks' time. Mm. And having been through two weeks, I said, are you sure? Are you sure you can wait four weeks? <laughs> and, you know, within a week, I was back in. Um, mm. And he'd been fitted me into, obviously, because I was on the two weeks emergency, um, he'd fitted me in to have a hysteroscopy, which um, okay. was similar to a colposcopy but more uh, they were going to cut a sample away right. so um and i remember them lining up all these instruments and burning a candle or burns they did something to um, hide the smell of burning flesh I can't remember oh. what it was yeah. um and it was horrible but by this time i was a bit robotic mm. it was like let's do this just do it and find out what's going on but before he sat, he did the hysteroscopy he sat me down and said uh you're gonna um you're gonna have to have a hysterectomy that was a shock it was like yeah. what, what, what's happening um and I said well, he said we've got abnormalities I said well, what do you mean have I got cancer he said yes that's the first time I'd heard that I had, had anything yeah so they, so I was in a bit of a daze when they did this um I was was on my own um so I had to go and sit down and have a cup of tea afterwards because it was quite quite horrible actually yes uh, I went home and I just thought, I don't know what's going on. So I rang the medical practice and said, can I come and speak to the doctor, please? So I went in to see her and said, I've been told I've got to have a hysterectomy. I don't know. How did I get here? Mm. And she said, oh, well, you've probably got um, fibroids or fibromyalgia or something. Um, and, um, and, you know, you'll have to have some sort of treatment. And I was like, still confused. I said, well, what? they tell me I have to have a hysterectomy. And then the next morning, I got a phone call from Pat to say, could you come in and see the doctor, please? And by this time, she'd read, read the notes and, mm. um, and it, it explained to me that, yes, I did have cancer. And so I can't remember exactly what went on in those meetings. Do you know, you have those medical meetings and your mind goes blank because you're so, <laughs> you know, you're so sort of confused. Yeah. Confused and upset and anxious, yes, yes. I know um, a close family member had had a a journey with cancer and he used to record the the, the meetings with the doctors on his phone because we all wanted to follow along and make sure, you know, know what was happening and it was the only way really that he could remember what was being said because you're in such a heightened emotional state. 
yeah, I wish I'd done that actually because yeah. you know now. So then, uh, oh, I haven't got the exact date, but obviously very quickly, I was, um, I was passed from the gynaecology team, which is where they do the hysteroscopy, um, over to oncology, which is where, you know, it's, you've, got, you've got cancer. And I had a meeting with them on the 5th of June. And luckily, I took my eldest daughter with me, Olivia, mm-hmm. and she um, sat there and basically she took in what they said. <laughs> and I just yeah. sat there in the days and um, they told me I had curative cancer um and it was had a basaloid squamous carcinoma all these wow. words thrown at me yeah. <laughs> and either be doing a um hysterectomy or i'd have chemo radiotherapy which was again a shock it's a shock taking it all in yes. um, and uh, they would let me know their decision um on the 12th of july um which happened to be the day i was i'd finally sold a marital home found somewhere to live and i was moving into the new home on that day <laughs> So I sat outside the house waiting for the people to move out for me to move in and got a call from the Macmillan nurse. You'll be having chemo radiotherapy and that's six weeks of treatment at the hospital. You need to go there every day. It was like, okay. And then it was going to start on the 30th of July. And, um, and then they pulled it forward to the 23rd of July. Wow. Uh, so, yeah. So that mm. was... <laughs> Fast forwarding um, to after all that treatment happened, how did you feel... Um, uh, now or well, well sort of as it finished how were you feeling after the end of all that I was um, I was bloated I was tired uh, my I was neutropenic so my um, my white blood cell count was at 0.5 wow. so I was, um, they told me to basically stay away from I couldn't go swimming I couldn't I had to stay at home because mm. if I got cold I wouldn't fight it very well yeah um, and um, I was just exhausted to be honest but I was I'm also a doer and I was like right okay treatment's over I've got to get back to work but luckily one of my sisters is a nurse and she said Paula she's my oldest sister as well and she's like well, my parents have died so she said not you must stay at home and rest you need to rest mm-hmm. and I think after the treatment you know you don't realize it's treatment's not only you need three months of recovery <laughs> Because, yeah. you know, it's exhausted you. It's, uh, yeah, so I'm getting your whole immune system back to functioning. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. but I'm feeling there, feeling there now. <laughs> good, good. So you feel a lot better. You're re- you've, re- yeah. you've, you've recovered. And... Yeah, well, I'm still recovering. There are still side effects, but yes. um, I'm learning to cope with them. Um, yeah, after the treatment's over, I then I'm a big reader, so I've like got all the books on cancer I could get and read, uh, you know, novels or stories that people have written of their experiences. I wanted to know how other people had, um, coped with it. Yeah. Um, but but now I feel like yeah yeah back get back going get on get on my feet. Um, it does change you though, cancer. I think I've got another check. I've got checks for um, every three months of the first year, and then I'm going to be checked for five years. Yeah. Which is good because you know, if I get cancer somewhere else, hopefully they'll pick that up. That's but, right. Um, yeah, but yeah, you don't, you never know. <laughs> no, you so never you know. Every moment. <laughs> yeah, but your future's looking lovely and bright. Yeah. yeah. So, um, for our listeners, could you what what advice would you give to them if they suddenly notice something, or what should they look out for? Well, when I look back, I think I should have pushed for a smear you know the smears aren't working mm-hmm. I need some other way which I finally did in reception to the receptionist but I think that if you feel that you've got something wrong and it's not being looked at properly then shout about it make yeah. a fuss make a fuss yeah. because you know 
it could it could save your life yeah <laughs> no if i hadn't stamped my foot to carry on having smears i think eventually i've been reading after the third inadequate smear then they would send you for a colposcopy but um okay. i didn't know that um so yeah yeah no i think you're right and i i know again from my family member that um the doctors are so stretched their time that they, they can't focus well enough on patients in a GP surgery. And I think sometimes you do have to make a bus yeah. to be able but to move the headlines, on. You know, through the whole debates, it's NHS needs more money. It's overworked. You know, those are the headlines we read. And so that's the impression we get. So you feel, or oh, I'm, you know, I, I'll just, you know, this is all they can do for me at the moment, but I think yeah. you need to be more assertive and um, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, Paula, thank you so much for talking to us today. I'm sure there's lots of people out there who are going to hear the words of wisdom from all the ladies we're interviewing as part of this series. And um, I'm sure it's going to make a difference to, to at least some people, which is fantastic. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Paula Jarvis talking to us today about her journey with um, cervical cancer. Brooklyn's Radio. So I'm delighted today to have with me Joanne Williamson. Joanne um, was sadly diagnosed with ovarian cancer fairly late on, and, um, but has got a brilliant, brilliant story to tell now and also wants to help us raise awareness as this is part of a series of podcasts that we're doing here on Brooklyn's Radio. So um, welcome, Joanne. Hi, Jill. It's lovely to have you here and we're so, so grateful that you are happy to talk about this to, to help other women who may find them, themselves in a similar situation. You're more than welcome. Thank you. So Joanne, tell us a little bit about you. So I'm Joanne Williamson. I'm 44 years of age and I live in Surrey. Um, I was recently diagnosed in August 2018 with stage 3C ovarian cancer and have been going through a, a journey ever since then okay um and you work as a civil servant but in a really important um area of the civil service um which is brilliant so joanne your cancer as we sort of said briefly earlier was found by chance tell us a little bit about how that happened it was unfortunately, or should I say fortunately, um, in August 2018, as I said, my partner and I were looking to have IVF treatment and I started the process and went for the first scan and it was on that scan that the sonographer found a cyst, a cyst that I didn't know existed. And the following day I had a call from their doctors advising me that I should go to A&E, which was obviously a bit of a shock. Um, they advised me that I had a 12 centimetre cyst on my left ovary. Um, obviously very shocked by that, but did follow their advice, thankfully, and went to A&E the following day. And it was from there, really, that um, they did a few scans and uh, discovered that they thought it was very highly likely that I had ovarian cancer. And the process went from there. Wow. And it was stage three by the time it was diagnosed. It was. It was stage 3C. Um, unfortunately, it had spread to my liver, um, which, again, uh, was surprising. I had no symptoms as such, apart from um, what I would call bladder pain, um, a fullness feeling in my bladder, the feeling of maybe being a bit constipated, and a little bit of pain down the front of my thighs, which was quite unusual, but uh, apparently is, is a sign of ovarian cancer. 
where tumours are lying on the nerves of the lymph glands and, and pushing down the legs. Um, so to be diagnosed at that late stage uh, was was horrific for me, to be quite mm. honest. Mm. And and the the sibs, the symptoms are they could be anything, couldn't they? As you say, they could be. I mean, I'm you know a postmenopausal woman and and would quite often get the urgent need to spend a penny or. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're quite, unfortunately, they are quite generic. So um, bloating is one of the symptoms. Um, changes in bowel habits is another of the symptoms. Um, and a lot of women have these problems, at maybe the time of the month or through IBS, etc. So things are often misdiagnosed. I mean, for myself, I was on a very strict diet regime and I'd been losing weight. And, and one of the symptoms or side effects, should I call it, from this diet was constipation. So in the May of 2018, I had actually visited A&E um, with regards to some pain that I was feeling and they did tell me it was constipation. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that fitted because I was on such a strict diet. Um, so for me, I, I didn't think anything of these um, pains. I just thought I'm drinking more water, my bladder's full. Um, I'm on a strict diet, I'm constipated. And it didn't cause me any concern. I didn't think to go to my GP. I just thought it was the signs and symptoms of being on a diet. And I guess when the A&E told you, yeah, it was constipation, you wouldn't think any more of it. Absolutely. I mean, I had between May and August 2018, I had two severe bouts of pain um, where it was really quite bad. But again, I just thought, well, they've told me it's constipation. I'm not going to go to the GP and I'm certainly not going to go to A&E. Mm. Um, I wish I had of maybe the cancer hadn't have spread by then, but who yeah. knows? You can't live thinking, you know, what if, what if I'm no. just very grateful for the fact that it was diagnosed um, very quickly and a yeah. uh, treatment plan put into place. Yeah. So after that, that shock, you obviously did get a treatment plan in, in place. Exactly what happened after that? So uh, just two days after, um, having my first ultrasound with the fertility clinic um, and I visited A&E. Two days later was when the doctors told me they, they seriously thought it was bearing cancer. Um, I had a number of internal ultrasounds and also a CT scan. Uh, the following week, I was called back for the results and advised that surgery would take place within the next two to three weeks. So it was extremely quick. Um, and I was taken in at the Royal Surrey in Guildford, an excellent hospital, where I had full hysterectomy or a modified radical hysterectomy with debulking in the September of 2018. And from there, then, I was uh, given chemotherapy. Unfortunately, during surgery, uh, the tumour that they thought that I had near my um, liver or on my liver, they couldn't uh, remove. So the hope was that the chemotherapy would shrink that for future surgery. Luckily for me, it did. And in January 2019, I underwent a liver resection, again, followed by more chemotherapy from February. Um, My last chemotherapy being April 19. And, and then again, um, during that process, there was uh, different um, things to consider, which I never expected. I underwent genetic testing, uh, never heard of it before, didn't know what it was, but took it. Uh, nurse recommended that I should uh, have this test, and I'm, I'm glad they did, because it has changed my treatment path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it uh, transpires that I have a BRCA1 
gene mutation, which is the breast cancer gene. Uh, I'm now at a 70% risk of breast cancer um, and I'm going to undergo yearly mammograms and um, MRIs. Uh, I do have the option of surgery, but for me at the moment, with everything that my body has been through, I don't think it's an option. Mm. Um, but what that has done for me, Jill, is it's given me a different um, treatment path. I'm now able to have a drug called Alaparib, which has been in the press quite a lot recently um, due to its excellent um, success rates, really. So the hope is that it will, it will stop a reoccurrence completely. And, and if it doesn't stop it completely, it will certainly give me a, a couple of years free of, of any cancer. So fingers crossed on that one. Mm. But so far, so good. Do you know, it's so fantastic to see you so upbeat and positive, Joanne, because again, we all know how powerful our mindset is and how much that can help you and help you get better and feel better, which is fantastic to see. Absolutely. And I mean, for me, it has been a really hard journey mentally, more than physically at times. Um, And I think that's where people who are diagnosed with cancer and especially advanced cancer um, may struggle because it's it's something that the doctors don't discuss with you. Mm. They don't give you the options of any um, counselling it's not something they do as a, as, a, as a treatment path so you have to put your hand up and say listen I need help this is mentally excruciating I can't cope with the thoughts and feelings I'm having um, but for me this is where charities like Grace come into play and the help that they can give you and support that they can give you um, mm. excellent absolutely amazing and it, it's really helped me because not not always am I positive and there are days that I do have, you know, dark feelings and thoughts and worry about the future. Um, but when you have the support of uh, these charities and charities such as Grace, um, it really does help. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, no, I think you're right. We, you know, I've talked about Grace a lot on air and I will be during this series of interviews talking about them a lot again, because you're right. They are amazing, amazing. These charities, they're funded almost purely by um, uh, contributions from people and, and events that are organized for them. And they do an amazing job of supporting lots of women who go through trauma like yourself or you know something similar as as we say their journeys are all different um apparently your oncologist was a trustee of grace did you know that yes i did actually um dr michael at the royal surrey and she was the person who introduced me to grace um which uh gave me a lot of faith in the charity because she's an excellent yeah and i think maybe we should give a shout out to overcome who you're volunteering for now as well Absolutely. I mean, again, they've been amazing. Um, I'm working on a program called Survivors Teaching Students, and it's it's survivors of varying cancer going into um, medical colleges, talking to our um, up-and-coming doctors and nurses, and just going through the signs and symptoms and and raising awareness, because it is about awareness. And and even myself, I had no idea of the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer. So any help that I can give to anybody um, uh, is just something that I will do. And it certainly helped me with my um, recovery as well. Mm -hmm. I find talking about it and helping others has really helped me. 
Well, we're very, very grateful for you talking to us today because you're absolutely right. The more awareness there is, the more people are aware of the symptoms, then um, hopefully we can save some people from going through as much trauma as you've had to go through. Absolutely. If it just helps one person recognize their signs and symptoms, um, then my job's done. I'll be happy. Yeah. Um, Because certainly I wouldn't want anybody to go through what I've had to go through and um, just whole experience but I'm very happy to be alive and I'm very very grateful for the treatments I've received and it's been fantastic from start to finish um that's our NHS for you <laughs> that's our NHS yes well Joanne thank you so much for talking to us today we're very very grateful and and I'm sure we will be helping lots of women out there who may find that they have these um these symptoms later on thanks Jill okay thanks Love- so much Just a huge thank you to all the ladies who've spoken to us today. That is Lucy Dodds, Kavitha Maduri, Paula Jarvis and Joanne Williamson. Ladies, we're very grateful to you and thank you so much for listening. Brooklyn's Radio believes your health matters. 